Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers Fest. The Vancouver Writers Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. I'm Leslie Hertig, Artistic Director, and I'm very happy to share this conversation featuring award-winning actor and author Ethan Hawke in conversation with author Jen Suk Fung Lee. This event was recorded live on March 14, 2021, as part of the Vancouver Writers' Fest's book club series. The Vancouver Writers' Fest carries out its work, including this event you're about to listen to, on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This event features acclaimed author, actor, Ethan Hawke, discussing his new novel, A Bright Ray of Darkness, a book that the Washington Post called a witty, wise, and heartfelt novel of brilliant fiction. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hello, Ethan Hawke. How are Look, you? Really well. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, nobody, the other people who are here don't know this, but I'm writing a book that has a chapter about Dead Poet Society in it. And so I am so ultimately thrilled to be here. Um, I have been your biggest fan since 1989. <laughs> so this is, yeah, I'm so excited. Um, so to talk about A Bright Ray of Darkness, which I finished reading and it was a great read. Um, it was one of those things that I couldn't put down. Um, and what I love so much about this book, because I'm not an actor, I'm a writer who only writes, <laughs> and is that you write about acting in a way that really unfolds the magic of it for people like me who, do, who don't really know anything about it. Um, and what's so clear to me is how much Will, your protagonist, loves the stage. Um, was this one of your sort of intentions to really show the rest of the world what's so engrossing and how much you love acting? Well, I... I always had a joke to myself when I was trying to write this novel as I would say, I want to do for the, uh, for the actor, what Melville did for the whaler, you know, I mean, <laughs> meaning, you know, I, there's so much, we feel like, you know, because of magazine articles and tabloids and all these kind of, chit chat, we all love movies and plays and things. So you kind of feel like there's a lot written about acting. Um, but most of it's really kind of, you know, yellow journalism, whatever you want to call it. And I thought there aren't that many fully explored novels that it, uh, give the reader a first person account of performance. And that if I could do that, if I could really write about, I mean, I've been acting for 30 years. Like what if I could, take everything that I learned and really give the reader that experience. That might be something to offer literature that, you know, that, that might be an, an angle where I ha would be worth the reader's time. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think what was so surprising to me is how uh, physical you describe the acting in A Bright Ray of Darkness. Like every sort of piece of acting that Will does, he, I feel it especially when he's hurt, but I really feel it in my body. Um, and there was, I mean, and I guess it had never occurred to me how silly of me to think that acting wasn't like a physical act, but I felt every, every moment of that. So, you know, um, I think, you know, when you were doing that, were you like physically in his body when you're writing that, like you're physically thinking. You know, of that's such an interesting thing to say, you know, I've never really thought about it, but if I was writing about the rodeo, right. I, I would want to put you inside 
the writer's body, right? And the thing that, the second you get to acting school as a kid, they talk to you about your body's your instrument. And you think acting is one thing, but in fact, it's really the use of your body. And when you're young and the teachers tells you that, you have no idea what they mean. I mean, I remember I just said, I was like, what are you talking about? The body's my instrument. But as you grow older and you grow into it, you really start to understand that like, you know, it takes 20 years or so to be able to master the violin, right? Before you stop really thinking about what your hands are doing. And the same is true when I've taught acting or worked with actors, so often the first, I say, I had this actor who was very inexperienced and I said, listen, and he said he was really nervous. And I said, well, what are you nervous about? He said, can I tell you the truth? I'm like, yeah. I don't know what to do with my hands. And I would have had no idea that that's what he was thinking about. But he was like, I understand my character. I understand what I'm gonna say. And I understand what the lines mean. I have them memorized, but what am I gonna do with my hands? And I thought, wow, it, that's the thing. It takes you 20 years to forget to be worried about. You just, before your hands know where to be. And before you, you know, I remember seeing a great actress once she did her purse exactly the way my grandmother did. The way she constantly touched and patted her purse and zipped it and unzipped it. It's communicated so much to me about the character. And it's funny that I'm here talking to you about a novel because when I was a young actor, I used to say that the actor's job was to turn a screenplay into a novel. That in a novel, they would write a beautiful paragraph about how she holds her purse. My job as a performer is to do that because the screenplay doesn't do that. They don't tell you what shoes they're wearing or whether they say something with a glint in their eye or whether they say it dead-eyed or whether they, you know, are, your job is to make the two-dimensional three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. And so for me, getting to write about acting, yes, I wanted to put you in his body. And yes, my relationship to acting is an extremely tactile one that you, you more and more, you start, I start to know what those teachers mean about breathing and being inside your body. I can see what an actor's doing by how they position their feet now, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can know what's off immediately. Well, this is really interesting to me because I, I teach writing also, and I often say to my students, when you're writing a fictional character, what the reader wants is for you to inhabit your fictional character's body and for you to write what their experience is yeah. as if you're in their body. And I say, I always say this, but I don't know if it's true. It's a lot like acting, but see, I don't know if that's true, but you do. Is it a lot like acting? <laughs> well... The thing about acting, and I try to get at this in the novel, is when it goes well, there's no intellectual process happening. It's a lot of discipline and work to try to unlock the subconscious, right? I mean, that's what, you know, you often hear people that are just fans of movies or temporarily interested in it or something. They think they know what method acting is. You hear that expression, method acting, but very few people really know what Stanislavski's The Method is. And The Method is extremely free 
the method is about a relationship to imagination, con concentration, and relaxation. It's not about staying up all night or people think it's, well, Daniel Day-Lewis is a method actor because he goes to the bathroom in an outhouse when he plays Lincoln. It's, it's, it's he is a method actor, I, I believe. I don't know the man, but it's about doing what you need to do to unlock your imagination and be inside that character's body so that you can achieve this mysterious thing called spontaneity. If I'm sitting here and I think, oh, I have a great idea. Uh, I'm gonna cry on this line. And then the audience is watching me try to make myself cry on that line. It's really boring. I I'll give you an example, meaning what they wanna see is actual creativity and actual life, not your like plan. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I was once doing a performance and uh, it was a theater performance and the director, and I was taking a shower after the show, wiping the makeup and stuff off. And the director came to my dressing room and said, how do you think it went tonight? And I said, you know what? I thought it went pretty well. And he said, yeah, I could tell you thought it went pretty well. It was awful watching you preen and enjoy your every whim. You know, he's like, you, you, when it really goes well is when you don't remember. I mean, that's what we're all seeking is that, that, that no place, that, that place where things are happening because of the other person, because of a collaboration with the playwright, with the lighting designer, with your scene partner, and that little magic happens. People don't really want to see you tell them how brilliant you are. That's a bore. <laughs> well, isn't that our goal with writing fictional characters too, though? We're That's trying true. to get to a place where we can know how a character is going to react to something without actually thinking about it. Well, I remember I did a Tom Stoppard play once and he said something so brilliant. Um, he came, I'll try to do this right, because to really do it right, you have to have the accent just perfect, but I can't do it just perfect. But he came back and he said something to the point of when you know you're writing badly, when you're writing and you think, ooh, isn't this brilliant? You know you're writing well when you write the last sentence and it says she dropped the red shoe and you'd forgotten that the first sentence of the, of the play talked about her putting on the red shoe and you'd completely forgotten. And, and, he's, and, and yet all the metaphors are singing and you didn't even do it on purpose. That's not even what you meant. That's when the shit is really happening. You know, yeah. you, 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 some, some under, you've tapped into some river that's running through everybody that, you know, that's unlocked. And that's well, the, the actor's job is to chase the same muse that lit the writer. And when you find it, something shamanistic can happen that's really exciting, but it's not about you or me or the other person or, you know. No, it's not. I, I wanna talk like specifically about Will in A Bright Ray of Darkness. So he's in a bit of a, what would I call this? A post-separation fog <laughs> and, and a series of, of things occur. Um, and he goes to some dark places and he makes some decisions. And I read an interview with you in The Guardian where you talked about um, the decisions that he makes. And you said, if you can't shine a light into dark corners, the demons live, that live there will never go away. So did you have any 
hesitation about writing Will's Dark Corners? Because there are a few. Well, I have hesitation about publishing. I don't have any hesitation about writing. I love writing. And I, I feel when I really like a book, that there's something personal happening with the author and the page. They're trying to communicate to me. And when, I, when they communicate in such a way that I can hear it, my world gets bigger. You know, whether you're reading a book written by a refugee from another country and your world gets bigger, you're, or some rich person living in a castle from another century, your world gets bigger. And, and so I think your job is to be honest. And sadly, for most of us, it's difficult to be honest and not touch something dark, right? A lot of us think thoughts we wish we didn't think. Um, but running away from them is not art. And putting them in service of a narrative that has a chance of enlightening, that's, that's the goal. You know, one of the problems that... I, I see, I don't have anything insightful to say about it, but one of the things that I see is that I hate it when people try to confuse art with like somebody running for office or something. You know, the, the job of art is to, for us as a group of people, to me, music, painting, poetry, dance, all this stuff is our collective consciousness trying to get out. We're talking to each other. You know, we're trying to make sense, run a star in space. There's violence, there's disease. The earth is on fire. My mom is mad at me. My, you know, I have my personal stuff. I have the global stuff. And, and what am I, I'm going to die, right? All this is really happening. Or wait, I was born. That's amazing. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Someone kissed me. That's breathtaking. You know, there's, children and puppies and flowers. There's all this good stuff in the world too. And so like, where's your focus? And I say this to be said that I'm, I'm saying this to try to say that it is confusing to be alive. And I love art because it's somebody wrestling with it, you, you know? And so if you don't wrestle with the dark and the light, you know, if somebody's all light, they're a bore. And if they're all dark, they're a bore. You know, I mean, it's somehow figuring out the dance that I find exciting. Um, I say often to my students that those collisions between lightness and darkness are collisions between people and their demons and their angels are where the interesting writing is, really. Those intersections. Um, it's really true. It sounds like you're a good teacher. Uh, well, thanks. I, I think I am. <laughs> thanks. Um, you know, something that I, I often think about, like when I think about the practice of like writing or the practice of creativity just in general, is that when you're writing something like we were talk talking about, like sort of Will's dark places in a, in a bright ray of darkness, um, when you're writing something like that, do you have a process for writing it and then returning to your regular life? Um, and I think this is probably really applicable to you as an actor too, like when you're acting something that's difficult or challenging or dark and you do have to return to your regular life, is there a process to help you facilitate that transition? 
I thought a lot of things while you asked that question. And one of them is that I didn't really answer the question before, but never mind. I, I, I wanted to write about the healing power of performance. I think there is something beautiful about live theater. And by that, I include rock shows and an amazing church service. Whenever people are congregated together to tell stories and be with each other, I think there's something magic and holy about it. And I love it, right? So I wanted to write about that. And I wanted to do that. I had to have a character who was having a dark night of the soul, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm going to write about healing, I've got to put somebody in pain, right? And so that was interesting to me, how you write about pain and then return to your normal life, which is, I guess, what you're asking. Strangely, my brain does so many things. Part of why I write is to give myself something that is mine that I can return to when I'm finished playing a character. Like last year, I played John Brown. And if you're gonna step in the shoes of a really significant human being, you know, whether you, whatever your feelings about John Brown are, they're your feelings and that's fine, but he's a very significant person mm -hmm. and his life touches on issues that are just so important to me. And, and you know, Canada ha has their issues uh, and, and, and America is built on a crime, on two, on two really severe crimes. And the DNA of the way our country was built has some broken pieces to it. And John Brown touches them and handles them. And it was very exciting to play a character that had the courage of their convictions. I mean, you know, with, with John Brown in my brain, it, it can, you, I can start to love John Brown more than I love me. <laughs> you, you know, and, and, yeah. and I, I, I wanna be John Brown. You know, and my wife doesn't want me to go to prison or get hung. And, and, and you start like, you're like, right, I don't want to get hung either. But wait, I admired, but it's, it, so the actors, I learned this from an older actor once that young actors often want so badly to be good that they will do anything to invite these characters into their life. I've met actors you know, they'll stay up for five days. They'll go live with pigs. They'll go march through snows, you know, to try to understand this character. And it's why I love actors. But they often do very little to let go of the character, to kiss them goodbye, to embrace them goodbye and remember who they are. And one of the things that I find helps me be more dangerous and more playful is to say goodbye, just to know that it's going to pass through me. I'm not becoming this person. I'm inviting their energy, spirit, consciousness, intelligence, whatever word you want to give it. I'm going to say these words. I'm, it's, saying words is a lot like a guided meditation, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, in, I'm doing an incantation for John Brown to invite him into your home. That's what I'm doing. And it's not the John Brown. It's written by James McBride. It's got all this like, there's all this other art to it, but it's still something like a prayer, like a meditation, and you have to say goodbye. So this is a long-winded way to get to your questions. For me, my own writing gives me a place to return to when I'm done with the character. I finished John Brown, and you know what? 
what's the manuscript for my book? How's it doing? Well, <laughs> and I, re I reread it and I remember my own life. And I, you know, obviously being with my children and my wife and like, obviously there's some legitimate things to do, like tactile, real things. But just even in my creative life and my imaginative life, to give my imagination something that is mine. Yeah, I call writing my self-care time. <laughs> I don't do baths with wine. I, I write my books instead. <laughs> well, that, that's good. It's not bad. I, you know, when I was watching The Good Lord Bird, and this, I did not plan on asking you this question, but when I was watching, I kept wondering if you'd read, I think it was Don DeLillo wrote a novel about John Brown in the 90s? Or the Are you late about Cloud Splitter? That's not yeah. Don DeLillo. That's not Don DeLillo. That's... Uh, yeah, I, I read it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't remember who it is either. We have all these people online. Everybody else remembers, and they're shouting <laughs> it at their Zoom screen. And um, Russell Banks. Russell Banks. I'm yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yes, Russell Banks, who yeah. wrote Rule of the Bone, which I loved. But yes, yeah, which I loved too. But see, the thing that made for me that made John made the Good Lord Bird special is it's not important. It's it, it sheds, whenever you talk about abolitionists or you talk about race in America, or you talk about this, people get on this face that they have to say something important or they have to say something right. And it loses a little bit of the human messiness. You know I mean? This, what, what McBride managed to do is talk about John Brown more the way I imagine Red Fox would talk about John Brown, <laughs> you know, or the way Richard Pryor would talk about it. I'm sure Toni Morrison would write an amazing book about that period. It'd be amazing. But there was something so unique about McBride's hit that I thought was different than Russell Banks's hit that made it, that made me hear it. Mm -hmm. I just laughed and I cried and I was so moved. And I, I felt that comedy is an amazing disarming tool to make people's hearts open and uh, I think when talking about something as volatile as the United States of America's politics and the history of systemic racism of this country, it's good to make people giggle before they do it because they remember that we're all actually human beings and, and we're, you know, th that we have a lot in common. Yeah, and we all laugh sometimes. Yeah. So that, that's the genius of McBride. And that's why I felt it was much more, you know, I think Scorsese was going to make Cloud Splitter for a long time. But my collaboration with, with James McBride is one of the best experiences of my life. So Yeah, okay. I did actually think that your version of John Brown was nothing like Russell Banks's version of John no. Brown. <laughs> I was watching, I'm like, wait. <laughs> Do you want to read a little excerpt from yeah. A Bright Ray of Darkness? I think everyone would love to hear you read. Well, I'm not sure if that's true, but- um, I do. <laughs> well, okay. uh, I'm going to put on my glasses. I'm gonna to try to look like a studious individual. For those who are wondering, this um, mural behind me is kind of, it's dark now, but there's this huge mural on my wall, which if anybody's a film fan, Richard Linkletter made me this mural. It's, uh, it's called Heads I Win, Tails You Lose. And it's the heads and tails of film. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful mural, but so in case you're wondering, what the hell's behind him? Uh, <laughs> okay, a lot of the things that are in this little passage I've kind of accidentally already talked about, which is kind of annoying uh, to you, I'm sure. No, it's a reinforcement. We love oh, it. Hey, nice. All right, there's a spoken like a professor. 
All right, this is the end of chapter one, and I, I hope that it might be a nice piece to read. And let's see if I'm, let's hope I'm right. The outside world tends to celebrate the most trivial superficial aspects of an actor's life, lifting their personality to a plastic godlike status. But the actual joy of acting lies in the absence of personality, in taking on and inhabiting the accoutrements of another's being, where they're from, their accent, their clothes, their background, you realize that every element of your own personality is malleable. You can do it. You can wear the skin of another human being. And yet, still, you are you. This in its own way feels profound because it illustrates that none of the things you point to as identity are intrinsic. You are something far more mysterious than a person who is funny, who is angry, who is hurt, who likes Marlboro cigarettes, who is Presbyterian, who's a playboy, who's Nigerian, who's a Real Madrid fan. All of it is dressing. Of course, acting felt good to me. Inside the play, it felt possible that I was not a person defined by his adultery or his unloving parents or his lies, his failures as a father. It is possible that I could be defined by something else. When I was younger and first started performing professionally, all I wanted was to be true, to be genuine. But now, having passed 30, I wasn't sure what those words meant. I turned down a fantastic role once because I felt I would be a phony if I spoke with an English accent, as if the cadence of my natural voice was not an affectation, as if there was anything at all about me. The casual unbrushed hair, the old blue jeans, the t-shirt worn thin, all deftly presenting the impression of a person who was not concerned with his appearance. That was not affected and it was real. Affectation is very real. My big break in the movies came with the role of a stuttering 17-year-old delinquent in a 1920s juvenile home. Everyone thought that was me, but the real, so to speak, me, was obviously an actor who practiced the stutter, stepped into the hair and makeup trailer, and then walked back out again. The real me was kicked out of drama school because he missed too many voice and speech classes. Later, I did a film adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull, Fans of the film would come up to me and kiss my face, so grateful I did not actually shoot myself. I learned quickly of the power, the absolute nuclear power of the deceit attached to any kind of storytelling. And that's the end of chapter one. So I, I skipped the beginning. You can skip the first 50 pages now and jump to there. Yeah, you're all caught up. You're all caught up. Um, thank you for that. I Before we started uh, the actual event, we were talking about how you actually read your audiobook for Brit Ray of Darkness and also for Ash Wednesday. And I think before we finished it, I asked you, did you like doing the audiobook recording? Was that like a fun time for you? Uh, and I answered that, no, it was not fun. Uh, I'm really glad I did it. And... Um, the people who were working with me were fantastic. But as I said, if you set out to write a book about it, you're like, all right, what do I have to offer literature? I mean, what an arrogant thing to say, but every writer has to kind of at some point say, well, how could I contribute, right? Well, you know, I've 
acted for 30 years. There aren't that many novels about acting. What if I had the guts to write about acting? Like, what if, what, what if I could do that? Well, what's special about acting? It says, I'm just leading you to like how the blueprint of the novel appeared in my head. And I really believe that it's an incredible tool for me in my life to heal. Um, this is gonna sound a little mystic and probably just not very interesting to anybody else, but when my acting is connected to my development as a person, like whatever you call that word, like are you talking about your spiritual life, your inner life, your development, what, these words always make everything smaller, but maturation, when it's connected, when I feel the role is asking me to learn something I don't know about myself, something good happens. And I have felt a great healing power through performance. I've seen it in, I've seen it as a fan of movies. I've seen it as a performer and I wanted to write about it. And so to do that, I needed to create a, a character, an I. I needed to use the I, the first person to create a like alternate universe, a, a kind of reimagined self version that I could manipulate and adjust and explore a lot of really dark, you know, I'm basically combining 30 years of experience, but for me, there's a lot of sadness in this book and the book is about the healing of that sadness, but reading it out loud was very painful. It was yeah. funny, it's, it's strange when you write, there's a detachment that you can feel to the page. I can giggle at the most painful things when I'm writing. I remember hearing about how Tennessee Williams would sit in the back of the theater and as Blanche Dubois was taken to the insane asylum, he would be heard giggling. And I remember thinking, was he nuts? And I know <laughs> it's just the writer, he's just pleased that it's working. He doesn't think anybody hears him. He's seeing the machine that he created. You know, he's seeing how the, the, the wheel is turning itself and going, oh, that was the right line. I'm so glad I ended on the consonant. You know, he's thinking thoughts that most people aren't thinking when he's watching. He's detached from the emotion of it. We, we watch Streetcar Named Desire and we're caught up in the emotion of it. He's long dealt with the emotion. When I had to read it out, when I had to read Bright Ray out loud, I had to kind of reattach myself to the emotional arc of it. And that's, a lot of things I don't really feel like thinking about. Yeah, I get it. It was uh, after my first novel was published, someone asked me if I would write a sequel. And I said, you know what? I'm pretty tired about writing about these uh, sad Chinese people. So I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm done with them. They're too sad. Yeah. Um, I, you know, what Bright Ray is so interesting to me is that we're, you're writing this in the first person, which I always have a really difficult time with because I find it so hard to give the reader like a really full experience for the secondary characters. But your secondary characters here are so vibrant. And my favorites are uh, Will's two children. Because <laughs> I, uh, I think there's a scene where the little girl talks about how her vacation with her mom's like new fancy boyfriend was so awesome. She could throw a towel on the floor and someone else would pick it up. And I was like, that is the funniest thing. So um, I know you're a parent, but like, is, do you think actually that being a parent helps people write from children's points of view? This is a question I ask myself all the time. Uh, 
I think living helps writers. I bet a good writer can come from anywhere. Meaning you can have the most interesting life and it doesn't mean you can write about it well. And you can have the most boring life and write about the sun coming up and change the world. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, for me, I've had four children. Every one of them has enriched my life and changed me. And I feel like, yeah, I can write kids because Indy and Clam and Levon and Maya make me laugh and they say the most brilliant things. And that, and in a lot of ways, they bring back my own childhood and my own friends. And, and so that they, they give me access you know, to a larger world. But I bet not having children, you might see children more clearly. I mean, I mean to say that I don't know there's any rules to this. I, I know that living and being open, you know, I mean, feeling the slings and arrows of life does open you up. And, and, and children have opened me up. My relationship with my children, it, it's kind of like if, if my life were a graph, the way it looks to other people is one thing. My relationship with my children occupies about 80% of that circle. You know, the like the, the noise they make in my head is so large. Does that make sense? No, it does. It makes perfect sense. Um, I, I, I do think like my son is almost 11 and I, almost, I often think that there are lots of kinds of writing. Um, the writing has changed. People often say that children are the enemy of, of writing. And I don't actually believe that that's true. I think it, it, I think his life, which occupies so much of my life actually forces me to be more precise with my writing. Um, but you know, whether that's true you know, for everybody. I know what they mean. You know, I stopped, I wrote a journal my whole life and I stopped when my oldest turned about 12 or 13, because I started, it all of a sudden dawned on me that I was writing it for her that I was gonna be dead someday and that she was gonna read these things. And I, I couldn't tell the truth anymore. Meaning not that I don't wanna hide things from her, but I love her so much I don't want, I don't want it. I don't wanna write that. Like I don't, I, all of a sudden I started picturing her, you know, a mature woman and being so disappointed in the mundane, lame things I'm thinking. And I stopped writing a journal. Cause I, every time I sit down to write one, I, all I do is picture my daughter in the basement after my funeral. <laughs> so just think, reading this journal thinking, why, why dad, why? <laughs> you, you like that movie? That movie's terrible, dad. Okay, I have a burning question, which is, I was thinking the entire time I was reading Bright Ray, is Mary, uh, uh, Will's ex-wife in this novel, I kept seeing Florence in the Machine. Like every time she stepped on it. Did, did you see her? Because I see Florence and the Machine. <laughs> you know, for me, it's like there's this, there's this thing in my brain called Bright Ray of Darkness. And I just take things and, and throw it in there. And they all get mixed up in this blender of what I'm writing about to me. Like, for example, there's another bin, which is for years I was writing before the before trilogy. And Jesse and Celine are really important to me. And I would have an experience. I remember when, uh, you know, when my vision went bad, uh, I started thinking, oh shit. Oh, I could write a scene about this for Jesse. You know, I could see 
that would be an interesting way to write because so much of the before trilogy is about time mm -hmm. and, and, and the relationship to human beings intersecting with time. And so like, I oh, that would be such a great, you know, I, I had a scene that popped in my, and so for me, there are issues I've experienced uh, with celebrity and what it means and how it, uh, you know, the, the different, there's these weird things that happen to you. Like this, I've never said this out loud before. I'm not even sure how it's gonna come out, but there's a weird thing that happens the first time you're on the cover of a magazine, right? It changes the way you look at every magazine you ever see. Because the first time I saw myself on the cover of a magazine, it was almost like the magazine had like somebody spray painted black over it. It just wasn't real. It was like, there was something wrong with it. Like, what am <laughs> I doing up there? Something must, that's not real. And I, I say this to say that I now look at every newspaper cover and I know that all these people are people. And I used to think they were cardboard cutouts of some magical universe. You know, there's somebody going through a breakup. There's somebody whose dad just died. There's somebody who has a whole life that I know nothing about. You know, I, I know nothing about anything beyond the labels that they get presented to me. And so at a young age, because Dead Poets Society came out when I was 18 and because I was working with Robin Williams and I watched the way the world reacted to him, you know, or uh, it, it, I remember I, I worked with Olympia Dukakis and she kind of blew me away when I was young. And I, and I would think what the world thought about her because they saw her in Moonstruck versus the human being that she is. And you start seeing that the, end, the ends, they don't line up. Mm -hmm. The public thing is not the private thing. And so then you go, what is the public thing? So I've been wrestling with that since I was 18 years old. So Mary, William, all the characters that are intersecting with celebrity in the novel are some part of dialogue, some dialogue I've been having with myself about what is celebrity? What is it? And, I, and I'm, maybe other people aren't interested in that question, but when it, hap when it happens to you, you get interested in it, especially when it destroys so many people. Because it does. It does. Yeah. And I know what it is. I, I know that most of us can't see what's special about us. We don't see it. And so if you get a lot of celebration, I remember this with, uh, I was friends with River Phoenix and he didn't really know what everyone else was seeing, right? But if everyone is giving you a lot of credit for something you can't see, then you worry that, well, I better not change. Because what, yeah. what if I ruin the thing that everybody's liking so much, right? Well, then that's like pouring, dropping yourself in a can of formaldehyde because you're trying to figure out what the hell everybody likes and you stop living. It's kind of like if, you're if you have a crush on somebody and instead of being yourself, you try to figure out what they like and be it. <laughs> Right? It doesn't work. Yeah. No, on my first date, I ordered a salad because I thought that's what people thought girls ate. <laughs> right, well, that's, the, that's it exactly, you know? And, and so, I, I don't know. 
I don't know if I'm making sense about it, but I, well, you know. You know, that was a good yeah. answer. <laughs> um, I think what we're gonna do is we're going to ask questions from the audience. We got a couple ahead of time. And one that I wanted to um, ask you of the ones that we got ahead of time is from somebody in the audience named Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Um, and it's, have you always known how your stories begin and end? Or do you have a journey that you're exploring sort of as you're writing? With this novel, I knew exactly how it was gonna begin, how it was gonna end. It was kind of, that, that's the part of the novel. The architecture of the novel came like a lightning bolt. You know, those things people talk about. I was like, oh, I saw it immediately. This, the second I realized that I wanted to write about acting, I was like, oh, I know what it'd be. I want to write about the production of a play. It's going to end with striking the set. I mean, there's something so powerful. You know, we've all, maybe not we all haven't, but hopefully, hopefully people have had a similar experience in some way of building a sandcastle where you kill yourself. You get obsessed with this little sandcastle and you work on it all day and your back gets sunburned and you love it. And the wave comes and knocks it down. And you're like, huh? Well, it was still fun. You, you know, it's a, it's a weird, profound feeling that I find really interesting about the meaningless, meaninglessness of life and the beauty of it. And if you've ever crushed yourself to try to change the world with your play and then watch them throw the set in the dumpster after it's over, it's really weird. It's very, it's, it's like a Zen cone, you know? You can't make sense out of it, but it makes sense. And I thought, okay, that's the end of the novel. You know, boom, that's what I'm ending the novel with that. So what's the beginning of the novel? First day rehearsal, great. First day rehearsal, end of play. What's the second chapter? Oh, got to do the dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsals are the best. I can't wait. I want to write a chapter about a dress rehearsal. So it's first day rehearsal, dress rehearsal, opening night, one two show Wednesday in the middle of a run, because that's essential, like when, when it's not about the play anymore, it's all about you. You're not nervous. You're not like, it, it's just a two show Wednesday. I want to write about that. And then closing night, five chapters, boom. I saw it like a, I literally, I got one of those little notebooks and I wrote act one, act two, act three, act four, act five. The book was going to be in five parts and every, every scene had to fit into that structure. You, you know, that was what came to me. Then it took years to kind of figure out who is William and who are the characters and what's the story. How could I, how could I create a beginning, middle, and end happening through the production of a play? Right. Yeah, so, that's fascinating what, to me, though. But what are your other books? Play, right? You know, I mean, there's like all these things that start to happen. Like, well, all right, you know. Did your other books come to you structurally like that too? No, not at all. Okay. I, mean, I wrote, I, I wrote Ash Wednesday and How to State. I like to say completely as an actor. I mean, you said you struggle with first person. I don't know if I could ever write anything that wasn't first person because I come at writing as an actor. So they're, they're controlled improvs. The same way, if I'm working on the Before Sunrise movie or Sunset, Midnight, whatever, I get these, just, I, just improvs as Jesse. Jesse's not me, but I kind of have this character I take on, personality I wear as Jesse. And I, then I riff and then you cut it and shape it and you give it to Linkletter and he says, this is good. And Julie says, that's bad. And you know, the whole thing, whatever. But 
Ash Wednesday, the hottest state, they're like controlled improvs to me. Just, you know, you put on a point of view and you riff. And then I turn it into art later. This one is the first time I ever had an architecture for a novel before I started. And it made it a lot harder. And I, and I, I, I flatter myself to think that I think it's a better novel because of it. I, I like the architecture of it. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a real structure nerd. So this is why I'm so fascinated with this. Yeah. <laughs> structure, there's everything for me. Structure creates the engine. It's the yeah. motor. It's the motor in which the characters can live. And without a motor, it kind of goes flat. And I, my other books, I, you know, whatever, they're personal to me and I liked them because I wrote them, but, but they don't really have a, a motor the way that this one does. Yeah, this one has a really distinct forward momentum, I think, which is what makes it so com so compelling to read. I want to ask a question from Heather. She says, why did you decide on a Shakespeare play production to underpin this contemporary plot? Um, uh, yes, you know, Shakespeare is 450 plus years dead. Why Shakespeare? Why now? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Great question. Partly because if you're writing about acting, Shakespeare is, you know, I mean, there's, he's the only one in, in his tier, right? I mean, there's, uh, he's just a magnificent artist. And one of the things as a performer that I love about Shakespeare is you can only fail. You're never gonna be as good as the play deserves. The, the, he's writing at such a high level that you can never play Macbeth and get Oh, the things that Paul Robeson brought Macbeth, the things that Orson Welles brought Macbeth, you know, the things like, like everybody has something they can do, but nobody can do it all because the play is that rich. And so, and there's also trying to make a contemporary piece timeless. Mm. You kind of set it against something that's much older. And I, I find it interesting, the intersection of a guy dressed up as a knight, smoking cigarettes, worried about his breakup. You know, I, I think it's funny. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> um, this is a this is from Mandy. Did you want your readers to see the distortion of an actor's personal life and the perception of the real life? Because there is. We talked about this, the sort of like lightness and darkness, but also like what is real and celebrity and all that. I think that. I don't know, you know, I don't really have a big agenda with the reader. I have a big agenda with myself. And I, I hope that through working out my own desire to offer something of quality that it might resonate with the reader in some unanticipated way. Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't know how to answer that question beyond that. I don't know, I don't know. I, I, sort of, I just know I don't really have an agenda with the reader. I, I try to make it so that you can have your own experience and you're not well, caught up in my bullshit. You know? Well, you can't, you can't really ever predict how a reader is ever going to experience your work anyway. And there really isn't much, much point in trying to control it. Yeah. yeah. You can control the discipline of your own craft, right? Did I say that twice? Could I say that once? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, can I not bore you to tears? Um, you know, those are things you can control. Yeah. This is a really, really interesting question here from Salma. Given the context 
of growing this novel over so many years and the unusual production schedules of the before trilogy and boyhood, can you offer any insight as to how to nurture such ongoing creative efforts? How do you keep that creative flame alive, Ethan? Please tell us. <laughs> Just have to, you know, um, there's so, um, I believe that, I don't even know how to answer that. Like, I think it's a really important question and it's one I ask myself, you know, I just turned 50 and do I believe that art can change the world? I know it's changed my life. You know, I mean, I know that for a fact. I, I know that I feel it connection. When I read Go Tell It on the Mountain, I just wept and the world got a lot bigger and better and more interesting place to live. And uh, the same thing happens to me when I hear a great piece of music. You don't feel so alone, you know? And so you have to, on some fundamental way, you have to believe that human expression has a value. Um, and you know, we're totally, one of the things that drives me crazy, and, and this is my own pet peeve, but you know, we're in a pandemic, right? And, 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 and look, we're all afraid of wars. And one thing the pandemic has taught us, we're, a part, we're, we're living in history right now. History is happening and you are aware of it. My kids will tell their grandkids about the pandemic. I graduated, in, my, my son graduated in 2020. Wow, you got, really? Right, you know, I mean, that, that will be, and how we make sense of our time and how we communicate with each other. Oh, I, what I was gonna say is what, what bothers me, people are fundraising all the time. We need medical research and we need this, that, and the first thing to go is people's donations to the arts, the mm -hmm. theater companies, musicians, and yet, I always think, what are we alive for? Like, it's like, what are, what are we, what's the point of being alive? Like, okay, great, we're living, but what are we living for? To share and communicate with each other. Yes, we have to give money to medicine. Yes, we have to, we have to protect our health and the health of others. But we also, these kids that aren't in school right now need creativity, they need outlets, they need magazines to publish their writing and publish their painting. Because how else are the adults of the world going to say your thoughts matter? Your thoughts are important. I want to know your thoughts. Not because I'm being nice, because I know your thoughts will make my life better and, and bring me insight into, into why I'm alive, right? I believe in that the quality of art represents the mental health of our collective consciousness. And if our mental health is not strong, if we don't understand and have forgiveness and insight and want to listen to the voices of the voiceless, you know, then, then we're sick, you know, and, 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 and we've got to get healthy. And so I, I think they're connected in a way that other people don't think it's connected. Oh, we'll worry about the arts once, you know, we got all those street lamps fixed, you know, or whatever they care about, you know, and I, I agree, we need street lamps. I, I'm not saying we don't need street lamps, but I'm just also saying that it's value. There is value to what we think and say 
and how we celebrate ourselves and how we celebrate our time on this planet, because otherwise I don't know what I'm alive for. Uh, you know, the chat is blowing up. People are, are it's, it's, it, they're loving what you're saying right now about art. Or else I drank too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, everyone's like, yay, he's, it's the truth. Art is getting us through all this time. And because it is though. And I think I watched a, a TED talk that you did about like, we're always looking for art or poetry when we're feeling, you know, when someone breaks yeah. your heart or like yeah. whatever. And it's exactly this moment that this, when people need art. Yeah, 500,000 people just died. And and also, and we're heading into like all these businesses that are like, wait a second, shit. The world is scary, you know? I mean, there's such um, disagreement about fundamental issues. There are people that are so angry that they don't believe that all human beings are created equal. I mean, there's so much that needs to be talked about and shared and needs to be done. There was a wonderful, I'm gonna get it wrong, but I, was, well, I don't need to get into that. I was, I was in a movie the other day. There was an athlete, um, I guess he's for the Patriots or whatever, but he was dealing with some anti-Semitic comments made by another player and he dealt with it with such grace. He did a public letter asking the guy out to dinner. And this is what I'd like to say to you. And I really look forward to talking to you about this. Um, it wasn't, he didn't come with him, you idiot, you stupid, you know, like he, he dissipated the fire and yet he didn't back down, mm -hmm. you know? And that's the way, what I love, I spent a year with James McBride, you know, and that's so James McBride, those of you who don't know, he's got his new book, Deacon King Kong is brilliant. And, but I've watched him intersect with the world and he doesn't back down and he doesn't stop laughing and he doesn't stop seeing other people as human beings, no matter what dopey stuff comes out of their mouth, right? And that is such a victory. Um, and and that's, that wisdom is revealed in his art too, so. Yeah, I feel like we've been through something together. Um, yeah. <laughs> we have. So Julia is asking, Will has a fraught, hang on one second, relationship with critics and reviews. How do you engage with reviews of your work? You know, also with like book reviews and how do you feel the impact artists and their creative process? I know I have an opinion about that, but let's hear yours. <laughs> Well, why don't you start? I think reviews can be very helpful. What I don't like is when they get personal, but that's me. I'm a writer, right? Like, uh, like, like a writer doesn't get as nearly as much personal stuff as like an actor would get, right? I guess I, this is what I'd say to that. I made my Broadway debut and John Simon of, he was writing at that time for New York Magazine, got a lot of play with the, negative review of it in which I remember he said um he said Ethan Hawke plays Constantine uh more concerned with his pimples and his poetry perhaps she should spend oh. more time at the dermatologist and less at the actor's studio no yeah. yeah right and I was a young kid right I thought you know I, I want my great dream was to be an actor when I read that review I didn't know that I would be 50 years old being able to talk about it. I probably, I thought I wasn't gonna be able to work again, right? I mean, I, I, it wasn't like an opinion. It was like, shit. And by the way, John Simon was not the only person to give me a bad review. He was just the best writer. I mean, it, it, and, uh, and I met him once years later. He gave me a really great review in something. And I, 
I thought I was cool and I kind of called him out at something. I said, see, you, you like wrote me that horrible bitchy review and, and then you write me this great review. And what do you know? Like, like I was the same actor then as I am now and you're just an idiot. And he said, you know, if you can't handle it, his basic opinion was that his primary relationship was to his readers, not to me. And that if I was looking for praise from my Broadway debut, then that's not a real reason to be engaging with the arts anyway. And that the best people can survive bad reviews. Uh, you know, the, what I'm trying to say is that if you're in it, what's the letters to a young poet? If you can do anything else, do it. You know, it's, if you're looking for praise, it's never, it's never gonna be enough. I mean, I can't tell you how many parts I haven't gotten, you know, uh, how many times I screen tested for some movie and somebody didn't like me or, you know, how many bad reviews I've gotten. And I, I believe I, the whole thesis of my TED talk is that it's not up to us to decide whether we're good or bad. It's up to us to decide whether art has value. And if art has value, then join the fight. Mm -hmm. Right. And let the chips. I, I don't you know, Bob Dylan doesn't get to decide who's Bob Dylan and some who's some forgotten poet. Maybe Bob Dylan will last the test of time. Maybe he won't. I bet as he will. But but Emily Dickinson lasted, too. And nobody sang her praises. They weren't throwing dollar bills in her lap. She didn't have 80 million homes. It, 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 if your life is in service of that flame, the flame of truth, of celebrating our lives, of the, it, it, then it's all fine. Mm -hmm. You don't need the reviews. All right, damn it. I guess maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. Who knows, right? You don't need to let, that critic is not in charge. They're not God. They're not, they don't know what's of value and what's of not. We know that art has value. And if you're trying to make it, then you have value. So fuck them. You know, but yeah. not, not fuck them in the way that they're idiots. Fuck them that that's their job. That's part of what we do as human beings. And it's okay if you don't like me, that's still my job. You know, I remember I had this great director once. It, it, I don't want to call anybody out or whatever, but. <laughs> no, do it. Well, his name's Jack O'Brien. He's a genius, okay. you know, he's a genius. He's a theater director. And we were doing, uh, the Scottish play, Macbeth. And, <laughs> and he called me up a couple months before rehearsal and he said this thing to me, it was so awesome. He called me up and he said, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. I just wanna tell you right now, you're gonna get the worst reviews of your life in this production. And I said, wow, <laughs> like, why? And he goes, well, Mark Rylance, who's, a, for those of you who don't know, is a, like a, a genius from the world. You know, he ran the Globe for years. He's British. He's like, he's doing Shakespeare down the street from us. They just gave Kenneth Branagh this huge rave review for his Scottish play production in London. New York critics fawn over British actors. They love them. They like drool nonstop. And they are going to use you as an example of why Americans can't do Shakespeare. But I still want to do the play. Do you still want to do the play? And 
I was like, fuck yeah. And he's like, well, good. Then don't call me the day after opening night crying because you're going to get slaughtered. And so am I. But audiences are like our production better. You want to do it? And I was like, yeah. And so what was, what was cool about it is when I got bad reviews, I was like, yeah, <laughs> fuck you. I knew you'd say that, you poncy Anglophile turkey, you know? And, and, uh, and it was so wonderful to watch audiences love our show and like go, you know what? I I'm not even being arrogant enough to say that they're wrong. The reason why they like British actors is because they're well-trained. We don't train our young people. Why? Because we have no national theater, right? We're these rich people and we have no national theater. Why? We don't care. So they're right to give me a bad review. You want to know why? Because you can't fake 25 years at the RSC. I never, nobody my whole childhood gave a shit about training. You know, you should hear Denzel talk about this. It's so, we don't train our actors we, we pay them tons of money the second they show any talent. And then we wonder why they're, you know, drug addled and lost and superficial when we don't have a proper training routine and treat art as craft, you know? And I, I mean, I'm, I'm waxing poetic here. I'm having a ball talking to you. Um, and and I, I just mean to say that what I enjoy about having this conversation with you is that I'm right and the critics are right. Do, do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're right. Mark Rylance is better than me at that. <laughs> I'd like to see him play John Brown. I'll take him on. But, um, but you follow me like, I, he really is much more trained than I am, right? But if I then say, well, oh, they're not gonna like me. I might get bad reviews. I shouldn't do it. You know, that's not the answer. It's gonna be my obituary, right? You know, I, I I might as well try to tackle it, you know, because I believe art matters. It doesn't matter whether I'm good. It matters whether art happens. That's isn't, isn't it the best case scenario that we create art or in the development of our art that nurtures us back? And isn't that why? Well, for me best, anyway. The best case scenario is that in developing ourselves, we develop others around us. That's how yeah. I would phrase it. That I, I, I really do believe that in the same way that lying and cheating is like toxic and catches fire like a disease, so is honesty, so is truth telling. It's, it, it has power too. You know, a lot of people lie, for example, just to take that one on, because they say everybody does it. But you know what? If they see their grandmother and she never lied, something doesn't sit right with that. If they see the principal of their school who's really straightforward, honest person who did the right thing that one weird Wednesday, and that principal doesn't know it matters, but it does matter. You know, these, these actions. And so I, I believe that, you know, in the value of the truth in that way. Yeah. I have a really charming question here from okay. Anne-Marie. She wants to know, will you be doing another in the before series? I ask because this is my and my husband's story. We also met on a train going to Florence, had a mad 24 hours together and met again 10 years later, got married um, and had the same types of conversations. So yeah, will there be another before uh, well, installment? Well, I will say to you, what's that person's name? Uh, Anne-Marie. Well, Anne-Marie, there is a little secret note to you written inside 
the celluloid of before midnight, somebody before midnight comes up to our characters and asks us to sign a, for me to sign a book or something like that. And all three of us, Julie Delpy, Richard Linkletter and myself have all had an uncanny experience of people coming up to us, telling us ways in which their own life felt reflected in these movies. And it's really disarming to us. It's really interesting. And it proves this point to me that I sometimes think that our lives are not nearly as unique as we think. And that whatever's really valuable that we're experiencing, love, hurt, pain, fear, joy, child, having children, not having children, our relationship with our parents, the real substantive pillars of our existence are, are very, very similar. And the ways that people have related to that movie have been powerful. In a lot of ways, we made the third movie in an answer to those people because we felt a slight obligation. The first two films are romantic projection. They're about young people dreaming of a perfect relationship. And we felt it was a mistake not to end that document without addressing how love is daily and love is hard and for love to work it has to be you know all those things patient kind all those ancient words that people use and 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 before midnight is kind of our response to what the dailiness of love could look like and and so in that way i don't know that we need to do another one i sometimes living through the pandemic is the first time i thought i'd love to see jesse and celine trapped in a hotel room <laughs> in Italy or something like that I don't know. A little diabolical, but I love it. <laughs> um, we have one, time for, I think, for one more question. So I'm scrolling to see. This one sounds really good. This is from Paul. Um, so the book title, A Bright Ray of Darkness, plays on a unity of opposites which transpire in the book. Will loses his voice to listen dies on stage to find out how to live. This is so a good question. Engages in poor decisions to learn. How did you discover this unity in the writing of the book? You know, this, is, this, this makes you wanna be alive. The fact that you would ask that question. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times you work on things and you just think, ah, oh, fuck it, nobody cares. You know, and then people care and it's very powerful that you would care and make that observation. I had a what felt to me a profound experience once, which is that a director said to me, I'm so proud of you, you didn't miss a show. And my favorite actor in the production said, hey, next time miss a show. And uh, so I, I wrote about that in the book, how could two people that I admired so much have the exact opposite advice. And in that question, I felt lived a book, you know, that how is it possible that going through a painful breakup could prepare you to be, to be a better partner and a better lover and a better friend and how is that possible? You know, when I, now you said, to be honest, the, the book, Dan, there's so many of those littered in there. One of my favorites is the young boy says, oh, snow would be perfect if it was warm, you know? And, and, 
it's just how I feel about life. It seems so unfair that we have to die to understand the value of being alive. But if we didn't die, we wouldn't care. If it didn't rain, we wouldn't value sun. It's so confusing. Um, there's a great Sam Shepard play, A Lie of the Mind, that ends with a, a line about the fire and the snow. And there is something about, you know, the unity of opposites. It's it, it, somewhere in that riddle uh, is the answer, you know, to me. Um, and that it is such a drag that we have to learn, we have to suffer. But we really, in general, very rarely learn anything without shedding a serious couple tears, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and for me, acting was a great tool to get at that, that, you know, there's nothing William wants more than to be the good guy, even to such a point that he refuses to see his character, his character as the bad guy. And then he goes through this huge effort. This is, you know, this is the fun of the, the writer and me. It's like, oh, this will be so fun. He, he's gonna go through this huge effort to show up for the free performance for the students only to have them boo him. <laughs> you know? And for me, that's the riddle of life. Like that's his job in the plays to be the bad guy. And sometimes in life, in someone else's narrative, you're just not the good guy. They're never gonna see you as a good guy. And you gotta stop trying to rewrite their narrative and start learning, are you the good guy in your own life or are you not? Because sometimes you're not even the good guy in your own life and you know it. And, and you know, there's value in those bright rays of darkness. That, that's, that's what the whole thing is about to me. Um, what a wonderful place to end our conversation. Uh, I want to thank you from the bottom of my writerly heart, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> I had such a good time. I might shed a tear. <laughs> it was such a good time. Um, and I think um, Leslie's going to come back to help us wrap up too. Well, thanks everybody for signing on too. I really want to say, you know, I, it's so scary to talk into the void like this, you know. I, I in general, decided to be really honest because of how much I like Canadians. I always <laughs> I always have the best time in Canada. You, it's 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 a great country, and you know the fact that the, that Leslie, you started your speech trying to give honor to the land that you're working on and working for. You know the whole relationship to First Nations people that Canada's working so hard to heal. Um, that America is really behind the curve on, so they really just somehow don't like to admit. A, you know, it's it's really upsetting. So it's really wonderful. And I've ha I have a place in Nova Scotia. I'm not allowed to go there because of this pandemic. And it's been such a drag. I Every time when it happened, I was like, let's go to camp. We're going to Nova. Kids are out of school. We're going to Nova Scotia. And we didn't get there. And I, so this is my way of visiting you guys. And I just offered you, um, uh, well, whatever. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope you enjoyed being here. I sure did. I feel great. <laughs> Leslie? How'd we do? <laughs>
this has been the most delightful Sunday afternoon that I have had in a very long time. So thank you so much for that, Jen. Thank you for your great interview. And uh, Ethan, we want to invite you uh, back to Canada. We'd love for you to come and join us in person sometime on stage here at the Vancouver Writers Fest. Uh, your championing of the arts is uh, obviously heartfelt, and I think it really resonated with all of us as well. Uh, so thank you for that. And thank you most especially for your writing. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing. It was a great delight to have you here with us today. Thanks for caring. Uh, I'm really, really grateful. You've been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers Fest. To hear more events like this one, please visit our website at www.writersfest.bc.ca.